My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Train Fully podcast, where we dive deep into golf fitness. I am your host, Thomas Malchow. Every episode, we meet with professionals, experts, and amateurs from all over the world to help you enhance your performance and gain an edge in your game. If you find our podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you haven't done so already, head over to trainfully.com, click the button that says free access and join our online community. You'll find all of our golf fitness programs there. We have 10 programs in total, as well as the original 12 week program, which I know uh, a lot of you have now completed multiple times. And that's awesome. You can certainly keep cycling through that original program. However, if you're looking to progress, I would recommend progressing to one of the new performance programs called postural control and accuracy. We call this phase one. This is a four week, three day a week program that focuses on increasing stability, improving muscular endurance, increasing the neuromuscular efficiency of the core musculature and improving coordination. So what's all that mean for your golf game? Well, with improved core and joint stability, you'll have less risk for injury. You'll also gain the strength and coordination to be able to stay in posture better during your swing, which will help you make better contact with the ball. This will improve your accuracy as well as your consistency. And you can also expect to gain about five miles per hour in club head speed. And that's just phase one. We have three phases that you can progress through to enhance your performance and really take your game to the next level. And if you're a professional or tour player, we have a program there for you as well. So sign up for the new community. It's free. Check out the new programs. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me directly. You know, one of the really cool things about doing this podcast is it has allowed me to introduce to you some of the people who have had a big influence on me and on my career. There are two episodes in particular where I introduce you to an individual from whom I have learned a great deal. You met one of these individuals in episode 11 with Dr. Brent Brookbush. And you'll meet another one in this episode with Dr. Stuart McGill. Stu is considered by many to be the number one spine researcher and back pain expert in the world. His research focused on the mechanisms of back pain, how to rehabilitate back pain people, and how to enhance both injury resilience and performance. His work produced over 240 peer-reviewed journal papers, several textbooks, and many international awards. If you have back pain or you're a practitioner or clinician who sees back pain patients or clients, I strongly recommend going to his website, backfitpro.com, 
and check out his resources. There are two resources in particular that I recommend. One is a book for clinicians and practitioners called Low Back Disorders. And the other is a book for the lay person called Back Mechanic. If you're currently struggling with low back pain, do yourself a favor and get Back Mechanic. It will empower you by taking the mystery of your pain away, and it will provide you with a systematic path to recovery. Now, I'm one of the very fortunate people who has had the opportunity to learn directly from Stu. And his approach is very straightforward, and it's very logical, and it all starts with an assessment. And this is the crucial part of your recovery. Now, the great news is in his book, Back Mechanic, Stu walks you through a self-assessment that you can do on your own. The purpose of the assessment is to find out what's causing your pain. Right now, you're not necessarily looking for which tissues are damaged. What you're looking for are the postures, the activities, and the loads that make your pain worse, as well as those that make your pain better. Because if you know what those are, that helps you understand the mechanism of your pain, right? So for example, if sitting for more than 15 minutes, tying your shoes in the morning, and driving a car are activities that increase your pain, but walking doesn't cause pain, then the mechanism of your pain or your pain mechanism is posture, specifically a flex spine posture, right? Because when you're sitting, when you're tying your shoes, and when you're driving, your lumbar spine is placed into flexion. And knowing that your back hurts when your lumbar spine is placed into flexion is extremely powerful because now you can modify your day and you can modify your activities to avoid a flex spine posture. And Stu shows you how to do all of that. And once you're not putting your lumbar spine into flexion so often and you're not triggering your pain, then the damaged tissues in your low back can begin to desensitize and begin to heal, right? But that's just one example. For some people, walking is going to make their pain worse and sitting might feel better. The important message, though, is that chronic low back pain is often a repeated series of acute injuries. You're doing something every day that damages the tissues in your low back and keeps that injury cycle going. And once you know what that thing is, then you can modify your activities and allow your body to heal. Now, there's also a step-by-step -step rehab protocol that you can follow to increase your capacity further and help build up your durability. And everything Stu recommends has been tested and confirmed in his lab. There's no guesswork. So guys, enjoy the episode and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. All right. So joining us today, the person who is considered by many to be the number one spine researcher 
and back pain expert in the world, Dr. Stuart McGill. Stu, welcome to the show. Oh, good morning, uh, Thomas. I uh, think it's three hours earlier in the morning for you, so uh, <laughs> good on it's, you. <laughs> it's 6 a.m. here, but the, the good thing is I, I'm used to getting up early and, and I actually function better in the morning. My brain's a little bit quicker, so this is going to be, this is actually an advantage for me. Fantastic. I'm a morning person as well. Well, as you know, Stu, you have been a, a huge influence on me and on my career, and your influence on me spans 20 years. When I first graduated, my first job was at a rehab clinic, and it didn't take me very long to realize that I wasn't properly prepared to assess, diagnose, and treat people who had chronic low back pain. When I was in school, I learned these really great assessments for the shoulder and for the knee in particular that allowed me to kind of hone in and identify specific tissues that were probably injured. And then based on that assessment, I had these really effective protocols I learned to treat those specific injuries. But when it came to low back pain, quite often there was this ambiguity, right? This mystery. And so I realized I needed to learn more to fill in the gaps a little bit. And I started reaching out to other practitioners and clinicians that I knew and respected. And it turned out that most of them were just kind of working within this ambiguity and they were really relying on their experience to help them navigate through that mystery a little bit. But I was a recent graduate. I didn't have any experience and I'm trying to gain confidence in the field. And that confidence is very much reliant on me having a system that gave me more definitive answers. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go through the, the research a little bit and see if I can piece together a bit of a system for myself that I can rely on. And your name keeps coming up and your research keeps coming up and it's so well done. And it helped me to kind of piece together a bit of a system for myself. But then I found out you had written a book, low back disorders. So I got the book and it was exactly what I was looking for. It provided me with that system and it gave me the confidence I needed to treat people with low back pain. I tell people that your book is like having an instruction manual for the lumbar spine. It helps me better interpret what back pain people are telling me while providing me with an effective protocol I can trust to help them get out of pain. Now that book is very technical. It's not for everybody. It's made for clinicians and practitioners, but you've also written a book for the general population, the back mechanic. If you have low back pain, you need to get the back mechanic. It will empower you by taking the mystery of your pain away, and it will provide you with a systematic path to recovery. Both books, Stu, are extraordinary. Both books are based on your research, so why don't we begin by you describing your research and explain how you've pulled back the curtain and removed the mystery of low back pain. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, Thomas. Well, the, 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 the research story started over 40 years ago when, as a young professor, I just asked one question, how does the spine work? And we... Uh, I uh, started working with my, my PhD supervisor uh, as a young professor, where we started to measure the internal and external mechanics of people. 
uh, we measured stress concentrations throughout the spine, the hips, and, and the skeleton. And it was interesting that they usually predicted where the pain emanated from or the eventual breakdown that would occur when we studied, say, occupational groups or athletic groups. Uh, and then I developed a cadaveric lab where we took spines and applied the loads that we had measured in real people. And then we watched the cascade of damage and the pathways of pain. Uh, for example, we might see an M-plate fracture with too much compression that increased the likelihood of a disc bulge. And then we would apply twisting to mimic something like golf. And then we would see the development of annular rents or disc tears uh, common among uh, golfers. Uh, then I started a clinic and it was an experimental clinic. This was about 22 years ago, I think. And we didn't have the pressures of the normal medical clinic to make money. We were free. So I started out with two hour appointments and I said, well, we, uh, I need to listen to a person's story. What were the impediments that caused them to fail 10 different times before they've been conditioned to fail. We've got to be different. I've got to understand the factors of uh, their back pain. And then we would make a lot of measures. Uh, anyway, uh, do you know after the first year we changed that appointment time to three hours? My, my medical colleagues thought we were nuts. What are you gonna do for three hours? And I said, we're going to understand why that person has pain. So now we have a solid roadmap to instead of dumb luck, oh, we'll manipulate it, or we'll medicate it, or we'll cut it out with a knife. Uh, the assessment and the understanding of the precise mechanisms took the luck component away. So now we had a one-to-one -one match. Here is your pain mechanism. And for that me mechanism, here is a matched approach that makes sense. Um, and then we ran uh, clinical trials on different groups. We had military groups, sporting groups. Uh, we did a five-year study with the Toronto Police Force, as an example, to see um, what interventions worked, uh, which ones did not for certain categories of back pain, et cetera, et cetera. So that was uh, the 40 years that in summary, I, I, I suppose then, allowed us to better understand the mechanisms of pain, um, better understand the assessment process, which assessments have what we call a high signal to noise ratio, which assessments really give you important information and which ones don't. Um, we were able to test better rehab uh, protocols. And then with the athletes, we were able to understand what were the specific demands of their particular sport? Can we assess their ability to meet those demands? And then we were better or wiser in our choice to match a very efficient program for them to take them from where they are now to get them through to what they need in the most efficient way. And well, I, I know you know this, but we, we gained a little bit of a reputation for dealing with elite athletes and restoring some of their careers, quite famous careers that had um, been compromised due to back injury and restored them to get back to uh, play. And it was such 
a joy for me to measure a human that was in the 99.9th percentile of the human spectrum. What did that person have that no one else has that allows them to lift a weight or hit a golf ball or survive an MMA match or to be world-class in soccer or tennis. Anyway, that was a very long answer and I apologize for that, but that was the 40 years that brings us up to today. Well, don't, don't apologize Stu. As you know, I love listening to you talk. You inspire people when you talk, you inspire people with your work and, and you've helped so many people recover from back pain. When somebody does suffer uh, an injury to their low back, quite often to them, it feels like the injury just kind of, you know, comes out of nowhere. But usually that injury had been developing slowly over time. With injuries, quite often there are certain uh, restrictions and limitations in the body that change how we move and increase wear and tear on specific tissues and structures. And if those restrictions and limitations don't get addressed slowly, but surely that increased wear and tear will begin to take a toll and those tissues will lose capacity, become worn down until eventually they cross this biological tipping point and they become injured. But had somebody identified those restrictions and limitations beforehand and addressed them, the excessive wear and tear on the body could have been removed and the injury could probably have been avoided. Now, in, in rehab sciences, we call these restrictions, limitations, modifiable intrinsic risk factors. Modifiable because they can be changed. Intrinsic because they're within the body. Now, not all risk factors, as you know, Stu, are, are changeable and, and not all risk factors are within the body. But being able to identify and address risk factors is a fundamental and essential part of injury prevention. So Stu, what are the common risk factors associated with low back pain? It's an enormous question that you're asking. And my brain was going between two levels as I was listening to you developing the logic for that very deep question. And I was going to a very fundamental place with the term low back pain. If we were to play a little bit of a game and replace what are the risk factors of low back pain with what are the risk factors for leg pain or head pain? Now that 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 really is illustrative because um, people understand, well, we can't talk about leg pain. We can talk about specific leg pain, like the person has a damaged ACL ligament in the knee, or they have uh, a vascular condition or phlebitis, or they've been burned, or they have a fractured femur, or whatever. The... So my point is, I, I, I can't even begin a discussion on low back pain until we assess it and subcategorize that pain into very uh, specific subcategories. So that, that's my first uh, thought. And when we get into specific subcategories, now we can have very focused discussions of uh, the role of posture and movement. And you, you, you mentioned the tipping point. All biological systems have a tipping point. When you load them or stress them below the tipping point, 
it's anabolic, it builds them. But when we cross the tipping point, it's catabolic and it tears them down with cumulative uh, stress. But again, very specific to the, the subcategory. Um, is it inadequate rest might, might be another issue. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about psychology and, and social factors. Well, uh, I didn't do this work, but when you look at the work of uh, Bill Maris, the seminal work where he would take factory workers and they didn't even know that they were being uh, studied, but he would have a fake boss come in, like on the TV show, and the boss would be terrible in terms of creating mayhem and, and social stress and denigrating them and calling them names and all this kind of thing. But he had all the biophysical sensors on the workers. Depending on their personality profile, the overt personality would just, it would be water off a duck's back. They, they, they wouldn't react physically. Other people with a more timid personality, according to the Myers-Briggs personality profiling tool, um, they would stiffen up. They would crush themselves with muscular tension because of this social milieu and stress they were placed under. So do you see, it, it, it's not one factor or another, nor are they dichotomous. They are all one. But at the end of the day, when you have tissue uh, damage and the assessment shows that that is the origin of the pain. You stress it with a specific test and they say, yeah, well, there's my pain. Good, let's try this particular specific test. Oh, that didn't cause me pain. Why? We migrated it from one tissue to another through technique change or posture change or whatever it happens to be. So I, I'm, I'm not avoiding your question, but to get to the risk factors, we need to get to almost having an individual in front of us. Yeah. And we could subcategorize their pain with an appropriate assessment. And then you and I could have a really good discussion on honing down uh, their particular risk factors and uh, things that we will start to coach them on right away. Well, and that kind of goes back to my first question and, and how you've taken the ambiguity out of um, low back pain where your assessments, they're, they're very specific. And, and the interesting thing about your assessments, and I think the, the genius of it really, is that you're not necessarily always looking for specific uh, tissues and structures. You're looking for postures and loads as well and modifying that. You know, does, does this posture uh, make you feel better or make you feel worse? And, you know, it, I think one of the things that inspires people, especially when, when they read the back mechanic, is how logical your work is. Like, if you do this and it hurts, modify it. If you do that, oh, now it doesn't hurt, do more of that. Do less of the things that hurt and more of the things that, that don't hurt. And, and when you present it as um, really simple like that, knowing that there's this whole body of research that's gone behind that, you really do inspire people and give people the confidence that they can recover from low back pain. But, you know, the interesting thing about you, Stu, is, is you're not just um, in a lab somewhere, you know, um, doing research. As you mentioned earlier, you work a lot with, with people and you help people get out of pain, including some of the greatest athletes of all time. 
So Stu, why don't you talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done with these super elite athletes? Well, every athlete who comes to me only comes for one reason. They have back pain and it is inhibiting their ability to train and perform. Now, some of them have had their careers ended, they're older, and they're suffering the consequences of the training that they did. Uh, so that, that would be the, the second uh, category. But uh, the first thing that we do with the elite athletes is we assess the mechanism of their pain and really hone down now to this is the mechanism now. It, there might, they, they might have comorbidities. They might be compression intolerant with an implate fracture. There might be uh, inflammation or inflammatory soup around a nerve root that when we remove the nerve root, it's irritated and there's a friction there. Uh, anyway, we, that's the first thing that we do. Now, the second thing that we do that's rather unique is we then assess the sport. We're not looking at them. So what are the demands of elite tour golf? Very different from the demands of the long ball tour, as an example. What are the demands? When I first started with MMA athletes in uh, 2005, four, five, I guess that was, no one, when I went to a coach and said, well, what are the demands? What are you training for? They really had never cataloged what is required. So the training, if you went to a training camp, was more tradition and sometimes almost religion more than, than science. So I would go through the different sports and really catalog what is demanded with uh, each sport. Then I would go back to the athlete and I would assess them for those very specific demands. And then if we, if we saw, well, the athlete can meet that demand, we didn't train it, they were done. But for the things that they needed, but they didn't have, we then designed a program to, in the most efficient way that we could, build that capacity to meet that uh, specific uh, demand. Um, so I'll finish that off by saying, I would say to these, again, fabulous athletes, if I was a genie, and had the ability to bestow upon you one athletic variable, what would that be? Now, a lot of them said, well, I need X. And that was cultural, I learned. For example, the uh, people who came from martial arts backgrounds, that's the way they were taught. Learn a movement, repeat it a thousand times, speed it up, speed it up, speed it up, etc. And they were able to explain, well, I'm going to dig the liver reflex to get my opponent to lower his arm. And then I'm going to wait for them to exhale. And then I can snap on an arm bar. In other words, it was a medical textbook description of what they were trying to achieve um, uh, in, in their athletic domain. But you, you wouldn't believe the number of great athletes who would say, well, uh, I, I don't know. And then I'd look at them and their coaches and say, well, what are you training for? What is the central goal of your training? And that was the problem. They didn't know what they were training for specifically. So... Um, and, and I should, I'll finish, I, I'm probably talking too much, Tom, but I should also uh, mention this. When an elite athlete comes here, they very rarely come on their own. 
they will, it, it, it creates, a, it, there's a team required. If you want to be the fastest sprinter in the world, it took a team. Uh, a fabulous coach who supervises the whole thing, but there will be uh, probably someone who's a specialist on the mobility side, a massage therapist or whatever. There will be an expert on relaxation to counteract the, the, the beast that they've created in, the, in speed training and strength training to get them to relax so they can even sleep. There will be a nutritionist, there may be a psychologist, and then there will be a spine injury geek like myself. So it's a matter of pulling that team together to really uh, make sure that, yes, they are in the 99th percentile of humanity, but you still have to pull it all together and fine tune that human Ferrari right down so that they are gold rather than silver or bronze or whatever it is. Anyway, it's a long answer. Again, I apologize, but that's what we do with the elites. <laughs> it's funny. And it's so true. These super elite athletes that it's like they have a pit crew, right? And everybody has a specific task working on a specific part of their body or their psychology to, to help them perform better. Um, so why don't we get into, to the golf here? Why is low back pain so common in golf? I would answer that by saying, I don't know of anyone who plays golf for back health. <laughs> what they do is they manage their back health to allow them to play golf. So that's maybe why, uh, well, it, it, it gives a little bit of a, a framework. So um, when we look at golfers when I was a youngster, so let's go back 50 years ago, and there were fellows like Gary Player and Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas. Uh, I, I was very interested in training, uh, when I was much younger and I would look at their training programs and none of them really did <laughs> with the exception of Gary player, who, uh, was, was uh, not a big man, uh, very modestly built. Um, but again, it was by today's standards, very conservative, uh, training, but they lasted a lifetime. So many of them. Um, but now when I look at, you know, the pro golfers that come here, their strength training, uh, and, and we can have a real discussion about that if you like, uh, I don't know if, if now's the time for that or not. Um, the volume is excessive. They strength train on the day that they play golf. Uh, that's a problem because now you're, uh, uh, signaling the body to adapt in two different ways. So you'll recall when I said we measure the demands of the sport. When we measure the great ones in, in, uh, with a driver and say a seven iron, we don't see maximum muscle activity. What we see is an effort, a muscular effort of anywhere from 30 to maybe 40, 50%. So the strength demand isn't really there. And what we also measure is the tuned elasticity of these athletes. So they're not strength athletes. Uh, 
I, I think some of the strength and conditioning coaches have somewhat polluted the, the, the real understanding of what's required for elite golf. And when you create force with muscle contraction, you also create stiffness. The two go hand in hand. So if I really activate my bicep, I can't move my arm. And we see this with MMA fighters. The ones who are very quick to, to strike are not the ones with the big muscles. The big muscles push their punches. The, you know, I, I'm a terrible golfer. But when I try and hit a golf ball a long way and use muscle, I slow down you don't hit as far. And when I measure the great golfers, they have this fabulous discipline to constrain the strength to allow more elasticity. So um, let, let me give you just a little bit of an example here. And I'm going to stand on my toes. And I'm going to do a pogo jump. There's a pogo jump. Now, if I stiffen the muscles in my leg and use too much strength, I don't bounce back up. I've stiffened the system so much. There's no storage and recovery of elastic energy. Now I'm going to have zero muscle. It, I can't do it either. So a pogo jump is simply a storage and recovery of elastic energy to mimic a kangaroo. Now, when a kangaroo walks, they use a lot of muscle activity. When they bound, they turn on their muscles to a modest level, which tunes the spring. Once the spring is tuned, they can now bounce along and they are physiologically much more efficient, but their athleticism is they're now bounding further, but they're using less muscle. Yeah. It's just a constant, they're tuning of the spring. And this is exactly what we see in the uh, great elastic athletes who are the golfers. But on top of that tuned background of muscle to tune the spring is a pulse. Now we're really getting into golf specificity here. And when a golfer goes into backswing, they are loading elastic energy, but then they have to recover that elastic energy. And then uh, uh, just before ball contact, they're setting up a whip. Now, Go get a bull whip, and then you'll become a better golfer. Start with a bull whip and use a lot of muscle and try and snap the whip at the end, and you'll find it's not the technique to create the snap at the end. It is a poom, like fly fishing with a fly rod. Poom, poom. You, the, the, the old salmon guides of Scotland give you a bottle of scotch to learn how to fly fish. And they say, put that in your armpit. Don't drop it. That's very valuable, that bottle of scotch. Now just use your forearm. And it is the short start of the whip. So the golfer recovers that, that elastic energy just before impact, slowing the hips down. You'll see that kinematic, they slow down. And then the whip, boom. And then you'll see the, the energy is loaded in the shaft of the golf club. It straightens actually before, it's called the kick of the club, as you know, that is just before impact, and then the whip uh, 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 occurs. Now, that pulse, when I measure the great ones, comes from two quite different strategies. There are the jumpers, as I call them, and then there are the 
hip external rotator. So if you take some golfers and uh, I mean, as you know, I'm not even allowed to mention the names yeah. of some great golfers with when I sign a confidentiality agreement, I'm not allowed to mention their name, their family or anything. But there are some golfers who will tell you if, if I was allowed to have 12 inch spikes on the bottom of my shoes, I would take them. Because as just before impact, when we measure the external rotation of the trailing hip, the upper of the shoe almost rips out of the bottom. That's why you need the spike to, that's where the pulse begins. And we measure the, the pulse originating in the external rotators of the hip. That starts the snap at the end that allows the whip to, to travel through the linkage and eventually to the golf club shaft. Um, so that's one style of that strategic muscular pulse. The next golfer is a jumper. Just before they come to into the ball impact zone, you'll see they extend. They actually jump. And there are some pros, as you know, that leave the ground yep. <laughs> on long drives. Yep. So that is their um, athleticism to generate the pulse. Now, what makes them the best and you and I not I'm, assu I'm assuming you're, not <laughs> no, you're, you're correct <laughs> and now we get into neurology how many strength coaches train the rate of muscle relaxation oh yeah it's very the, few very very few so I know there are a few a few on the, on the tour because I, I I've worked with them who uh, know that within this background of tuned elasticity, the rate of onset. So if I turn on the onset too much, I slow down my rotational speed coming down into uh, the impact zone. Yeah. But then when the pulse occurs, you just want a little <clears throat> on off. In other words, it's a on off and then relax for the speed of follow through. Um, you, it, it's easier to train the muscle pulse. Boom, but it's more difficult to train the rate of relaxation. Um, the, the, the Russians were really the, what shall I say, the first, the, the innovators in uh, teaching relaxation and, and measuring the rates of relaxation. So they would measure, say, an Olympic lifter who would pull and catch a snatch in an, in, an Olympic uh, snatch lift. Their ability to relax a muscle was six times faster than the man on the street. Wow. I confirmed that. It's true. When I measured the great MMA strikers, you know, in the UFC fight leagues and elite leagues like that, they were in the category of six times faster than the graduate students in our laboratory uh, at the time. And it's the same with uh, the great golfers. They have this neurology. But if you're asking me about what makes them so great, uh, what happens with back pain, it's all one huge question. And it's messing up that formula in the linkage of tuned elasticity, don't get too strong, learn to pulse. And failure to do any of those will create a stress concentration in external rotation of the trailing knee, for example. So now they've got a knee issue. Uh, 
or it might have gone into their hip or into their spine or their thoracic spine, whatever. Um, but your assessment, you were right. Uh, the, the, the assessment will reveal the cascade as it travels through the, the linkage. So I, I'm sorry it was such a nonspecific uh, answer, but again, that was an enormous I question, think, and I know where it came from. It, it, it was a perfect answer, Stu, and, and it leads into another question that I have later on that I'm just going to comment on, on now, but you probably don't know this, but as you know, my, my handle on Instagram is at elastic golfer. And the reason I chose that term or that word elastic is because, um, I agree. I think the most impactful thing we can do to increase, um, a golfer's club head speed and also prolong their career and respect their biology is to, um, develop and take advantage of the elastic properties of the neuromuscular system. There, there are a lot of people doing uh, squats in their, in their programs in an attempt to gain strength and facilitate their power development. There are some advantages to doing that, but um, I mean, I, obviously your research has shown there's also a lot of risk to loading the spine. When, when you're loading the spine of a golfer, you, you can change the anatomy a little bit. There's adaptations to that, that that comes with, with risks. I'm going to ask you a little bit about that later on, but what I want to ask first is right now there are people who, who have low back pain golfers listening who have tuned in and they, they don't know what to do. They've probably seen a lot of different doctors. They're 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 They have a lot of mystery and kind of um, dark feelings probably about their pain. What are the three most important things a golfer with chronic low back pain should do to begin their road to recovery? Yeah, I'm detecting the human misery side as you were asking that very emotional question. And, you know, I, I, I get it 100%. Um, when someone sees their career slipping away or not a golfer just someone who's responsible for putting food in their kids mouths right. and you know they're a carpenter or they're a fisherman or a farmer and they see that compromise it's 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 awful okay um just remind me now was it three things Three things. First Three thing, I'm going to say the first thing though, and this might be one of the, your answers. I'm going to steal one probably. Oh. First thing you have to do is you have to purchase the back mechanic. First thing you have to do by Stuart McGill, the back. <laughs> well, I, it, a lot of that mystery and all of that misery away. I, well, that, that's pretty accurate because I, I wasn't going to mention that, but what the book does will, will guide you through the three things that I was going to say. And the first one is you need an assessment to show you the pain pathway or the mechanism of your pain. So in back mechanic, uh, it is for the lay public, but if you go to your doctor, you're not going to get a back assessment. That's, that's just the way it, it is. That's the way the medical system is. So believe it or not, I have nine self tests in there that will show you at least what activities, what postures, what movements, and what loads cause your pain. And then it gives you movement hacks to avoid those triggering 
uh, variables, allows the pain to desensitize, and uh, it also gives you some clues about tuning uh, your body. So to be very specific here on three things, assess and know the specific mechanisms of your pain. Number two, be strategic in winding down your pain sensitivity. Number three, tune the athleticism. Uh, now this will seem strange, realizing that you can't have it all. The stronger you get, the less mobility your spine will have. And I can get into the uh, biologic discussions of that if you like. Yes, let's but, do that. Uh, all right. Um, let's take the extremes of spine athleticism in terms of, let, let's go from mobility through to the strongest spined athletes in the world, who are the power lifters, no question, they have the highest loads uh, down their back. Now, when you hang out with power lifters, you will notice that uh, they wear Birkenstocks or sandals because they can't bend down to tie their shoes. They have difficulty scratching their ear because of the stiffness and bulk they've developed in their body because the spine is a flexible rod. Uh, you have to stiffen it to allow it to bear the tons of compression that they put down their back. I have all of these uh, interesting models. This is a 10 segrity model of the spine. So there's an elastic spine, but watch when I load it in compression. Do you see that there is a node of buckling right there? Because the uh, stiffness is not symmetric all the way through. Now, if that was a stack of oranges and one orange was displaced ever so slightly, it would fly out with uh, uh, very little compressive load. But the power lifters have developed an enormous guy wire system and barrel around the spine to engineer out all those little micro movements so it won't buckle and it will sustain tons. However, the price they've paid for that very specific athleticism is a, is a loss of mobility. And I, I dare say elasticity as well. Now let's go to the polar opposite. Let's take someone who has, sorry, who has practiced yoga for their life. Now they are fabulous with spine mobility, but I've yet to measure a, a, a fabulous yogi who can sustain high load because the spine is so elastic that it, it, it can buckle uh, un, under heavy load. And the adaptations of the uh, disc itself, let's see if I have a disc here. Here's a disc. I, I have another podcast later that I was setting up some of these demonstrations for. And by the way, uh, these models are produced in British Columbia in Nanaimo oh. by a group, uh, Dynamic Disc Designs, who are absolutely fabulous. But there is a spinal disc filled with gel yeah. in the middle, and around the gel are concentric rings of collagen fibers. So these are all little collagen fibers. Now, this is not a ball and socket joint like a hip or a shoulder. It is an adaptable fabric. All of those fibers form a fabric. So if I take a, a fabric, you can see the weave of the fibers in the fabric there. Now I'm going to create stress strain reversals back and forth like this. 
and you see how very quickly there's a delamination in the fibers. So that is what happens with a lot of repeated mobility. It's a stress strain reversal that all of these collagen fibers are held together with a gooey substance called a ground substance. Now I can flex and extend and move my spine around and practice yoga, which is great if that's what you want to do. So um, you've loosened the collagen fibers, not by loosening the fibers, but loosening the gooey stuff that holds them all together. So now when I ask for a big strength demand, I'm, I'm going to deadlift something heavy off the floor. We're going to squeeze the nucleus, but the collagen fibers have now delaminated and you're going to start to see, can you see yeah. uh, the travel through the delaminated collagen and we see a little bit of a disc bulge uh, forming. Yeah. So in order to form that disc bulge, I needed to have some uh, delamination. Now that's just one pathway. There are several others, but um, it just goes to show you that biology is not infinite in bestowing athletic ability. There's always a uh, a compromise. So if, if we went into the physiology world, you can have an endurance athlete and you can have an explosive athlete. You can't have it both ways. The metabolisms compete with one another. So the more endurance you train, you have to sacrifice some explosive athleticism. Now the discussion turns to tuning. Where are you tuning your athleticism between mobility and strength? endurance and explosive pulsing power. So now we get back to elasticity and the ability to give that nice little pulse in a tuned muscular uh, environment, the right blend of mobility and stability throughout this linkage. Now we can have a, a really uh, purposeful and focused discussion on the golfing athlete. I, I don't know if that sets it up or not, but, uh, well, it, it, <laughs> and, and may I also say, Tom, and, and you, you know this as well as anybody, when you look at the golf literature, there are a few exceptions, but almost all of them talk about the golf swing. In other words, the description of the movement and a gadget. Very few of them get into the muscular uh, patterning the neurological response. And I've submitted some of our science to some, what people would think are respected golf journals. And what I get back from the editor is this doesn't help us sell product. We're not interested. Yeah. So now I see the purpose of the magazine is to sell you something. It's not to get into the science of yeah. golf. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, when you're talking about the, the, the discs earlier, and that's something that, um, that people have heard me talk about a lot before as well is, is if you, most of the, the golfers who are playing on a, on a competitive tour somewhere have been playing golf most of their life. And, and so they grew up playing golf and because they grew up playing golf, they've, um, their, their discs have adapted to become better at storing and recovering elastic energy, like you, like you talked about earlier. And to accomplish that, the, uh, the fibrocartilaginous joints, those discs, those collagen fibers aren't held as tightly 
as other athletes, right? They're a little bit looser, just like you said. And so you have these, these loose collagen fibers, and then suddenly in your twenties, you, 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 maybe you're going to university now, or you're on um, some sort of program where they decided, okay, we're going to make you stronger. And they have you starting to do these, these squats, the risk to a golfer who has been golfing their entire life and has developed these really great golf specific discs in their spine. There's a lot of risk to load that type of disc with, with weight. And, and that's the concern that uh, people have heard me talk about before. Um, th that's why I don't recommend squats to golfers. And you did a, a just a fabulous job of, of demonstrating that. And the reason I feel that way against you is because of the research that, that you've done and your research is so well done. And I've talked about how research isn't always done well, you know, that just because something has been done uh, or been shown uh, to be uh, or proven, supposedly I use quotations there in a scientific study doesn't actually mean it's been proven. Not all scientific studies are, are done equally. Yours are done um, they're just superb and you can trust the results that that come from your study. So I just wanted to, to uh, thank you again for all the research that, that you put out there that's helped people like me better um, help uh, golfers with low back pain, also help train athletes to become better at their sport. But then my next question, Stu, is, is about surgery. Um, surgery is obviously always the last option. Uh, but despite some people's best efforts, uh, sometimes surgery is required. Now, the struggle for people is knowing whether or not surgery is right for them and for their specific injury. So, Stu, what advice do you have with, for people who are currently struggling with that decision? Right. There's a whole chapter in Back Mechanic, Is Surgery for You? Usually, a person has tried what is known as conservative therapy, non-surgical. So they've been to the chiropractor, the physical therapist, the osteopath, perhaps uh, a yoga or Pilates class, uh, etc. And then they tell them, well, none of this has worked. Your last hope is surgery. Of those people who came to the clinic and we followed up with every patient we ever saw, it was very unusual for a clinic to know their score, but we knew our score exactly because we followed up with every single patient. We knew their subcategory. We know whether they even complied with the recommendations that we gave them. And in a two-year follow-up, if they were told the last thing for you is surgery and they follow the general program in back mechanic, which is interval walks, strategic stability in the core, using the exercises that we had chosen, creating strategic mobility in the shoulders, in the hips, in the ball and socket joints, um, creating um, some pushing and pulling patterns, and learning some strength patterns, not to twist, but to stop and control twisting even in golfers. Um, after two years, they 95% of them avoided surgery. Now I can back that up because I, we've, that's the statistic that we came, 95% of them avoided surgery. And in a two-year follow-up, they were glad that they did. Now, there are some who say, 
let, let me give an example of, let's say, a character exercise addict. So let's take a young mother who has uh, a couple of young kids at home, and uh, she will say, I have to go to the gym every day and ride the elliptical for uh, 30 minutes. I have to do X, X, and X at the uh, gym. Otherwise, I will go mentally crazy. It's my stress relief. And we know that that's the reason why they're unable to reduce their back pain. Every day they pick the scab with that chronic overexposure. So I will say, well, for you, surgery will probably work. Why? It's forced rest. It's the only thing that's going to stop you from going to the gym tomorrow and picking the scab of your pain. You're going to stay in bed, get up, go to the toilet, go back to bed. And then the next day you'll start adding short walks. And then the next day it'll be more and more. In other words, it's a forced rest with graded re-exposure of, uh, of uh, physical things that will build your body back slowly in a pain-free way. So why don't we mimic that without the knife? And we call it virtual surgery. So there's a whole chapter on how to do virtual surgery. Uh, and in other words, we, we mimic the surgical, post-surgical recovery. Um, and if that doesn't convince people, well, then <laughs> the next question is, all right, you're, you, you, you really want to go the surgical route here. Now we give them the facts. If the surgeon says we're going to work on more than one level, so let's do a two level fusion of your back. The odds that you will be happy just went way down. So the more extensive and complicated the surgery, uh, the greater your, your, your risk that you're taking. Then if the person is a golfer, since those are the people that are probably uh, more likely to come to you, say to the surgeon, how many golfers have you done this procedure on and how many of those golfers went back to playing golf? Mm -hmm. And if the surgeon says uh, they can't answer, or if they do give a number, then you must ask, may I talk with one of those previous patients? Now, if a patient said that to me, I'd say, good, here, go, go ahead and, and please. Uh, but when the surgeon won't do that, I'd run the other way. Yeah. So good surgeons uh, also do an assessment and prove that the thing they're going to cut out with their knife is the pain generator. And if they can't prove that, you are now an experiment for the surgeon. You are not operating on the proven mechanism of pain and that the knife will alter the anatomy to take the pain away. So at the end of the day, uh, of course, there's a time for surgery. If you have been traumatized by impact or something like that, uh, the surgeons need to stabilize your spine. Absolutely, there's a, there's a time and a place. Generally speaking, for back pain, I would uh, really recommend avoiding uh, surgery. Now, radiating pain and leg pain, that is a different discussion. So. Now, if uh, nerve roots are involved and you've done all of the conservative approaches uh, uh, targeted to the uh, particular pain, all right, we will have a surgical uh, discussion. So it, it, in a broad brush sense, uh, 
you better think long and hard about back pain uh, surgery versus uh, radiating for non-traumatic. Well, I remember one of the, the conversations I had with you was, was actually regarding this and, and you talked about, and it really, it stuck with me and it's a, it's a sentence that I've taken from you and people have heard me say it before is chronic low back pain is quite often a repeated series of acute injuries. You're doing something every day through your daily activities. That's kind of like you say, picking the scab and just keeping that injury going and Again, I think it's just a, a brilliant idea of, of having this virtual surgery where you allow those tissues to desensitize, right? And, and the example that you used with me is, is it's like having a, a hammer, this tiny little hammer, and you keep hitting your thumb with it, and your thumb gets sore, and you try all this fancy rehab, and you do all these things but you never stop hitting your, your thumb with that tiny little hammer. Well, the pain's not going to go away, no matter how much money you spend on rehab until you take that little tiny hammer and stop hitting your thumb with it. And I, I think that if more people were to uh, take that approach, and this goes back again to the back mechanic, finding your pain mechanism, finding those postures and loads that are uh, hitting your thumb, so to speak, you're finding what that tiny little hammer is and you're taking it out of your day. And quite often, um, people can can recover quite nicely once they figure out what it is that's causing their pain. One of the things that that um, you talk a lot about, Stu, that really resonates with me, and 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 people have heard me talk about it a lot as well, is this concept of capacity. As a kinesiologist, my approach is to help people move better. And all of my rehab programs, not just for the back, but for all areas of the body, all of my rehab programs, all of my performance programs, their purpose is to increase capacity by building a foundation of higher quality movement patterns. Because the more capacity a golfer has, the more they can practice, and the more they can practice, the better they will become, assuming they, they have you know good practice. But not all exercise techniques and not all fitness programs are going to increase a golfer's capacity for golf. Some can actually decrease capacity. So what would you recommend that we include in and exclude from our golf fitness programs to increase a golfer's capacity? I wish I had an answer of one sentence, but as usual, the answer is it depends, and it depends on the individual and what the assessment tells you the answer is. So if the assessment shows you that when they sit down at their computer for 40 minutes, they trigger their back pain, and then you watch them when they come into your facility and they sit down and take their shoes off in full flexion, mimicking the thing that causes their pain, and then when they stand up, their first move is to into more spine flexion. In other words, all day long, they're using the little hammer, hitting their thumb, but in this case, aggravating and increasing the sensitivity of their back pain. So in that case, what do we include in their golf program? It, we haven't even gone near their golf, pre, golf program because we could build so much more capacity to 
take advantage of the gifts you're giving them in their golf program by looking at the other 24 hours in their day. So if they say, let's look at a pain pattern. Um, when's, when's the worst time of day for you? Oh, it's when I get out of bed. Really? Let's measure and see if you have some spine instability. So we'll do a prone instability test. We'll do a lateral shear instability test. Yes, that triggers your pain. Okay, let's look at your mattress. Is it a, a bit of a floppy, uh, soft mattress? Is it a memory foam? Um, uh, let's try a firm mattress. If you are a, a person that doesn't have a, a lot of shape, like there are some women who have wider hips and shoulders and a narrower waist. So if they side lay on a very hard bed, their waist is unsupported. It goes into lateral deviation. And for eight hours, they've just slept triggering their pain that you've just measured in the clinic. But if you gave them a pillow or a support under the hollow part of their waist, they will wake up the next morning and say, I didn't have pain in the morning. You just built capacity for golf. So there is an example where most clinicians never even go because their uh, assessment is so superfluous. It doesn't have a ghost of a chance of revealing why that person has pain and no ability to play golf. That's why an assessment can last two or three hours. Anyway, there's the beginning of what I would say uh, before we even get into golf programming to enhance the ability to play golf and, and, and train. Um, but then once we get past specific pain triggers, we have to talk about, well, where is the tipping point for that particular individual? So we can talk about the volume that we're going to give them of a specific exercise. Is it three reps or is it 10 reps? Is it 10 second holds or is it 30 second holds? So we will converge on that uh, through the uh, assessment. Have we started with a good base? So with a golfer, have we tuned their elasticity? Do we have appropriate mobility in the shoulders, the, uh, the hip joints, um, et cetera? Uh, are they too strong? Now, there are some strength coaches who will say, oh, you, there's no such thing as being too strong. Uh, they're dead wrong for golf, I'm sorry. I, will, I, I can prove that over and over again. Um, are they appropriately tuning their core musculature, which is a pulsing strength uh, or have they engineered out, maybe I'll, I'll show this, it's a very nice model, uh, once again, from dynamic disc designs. So this might be a golfer who has uh, created a little bit of micro damage to this joint here. They might have do it, done it uh, lifting a refrigerator at home, uh, helping their daughter move, or they, they might have done it uh, in the weight room. Uh, while they were being trained for golf. Nonetheless, this joint has lost a little bit of stiffness through injury. This is a normal joint, and this is a normal joint. Let me go into a twist now. So I'm going to apply a twist to go into backswing, and then we come down into ball impact and then follow through. Now, where is the majority of the motion? Yeah. It is at the joint that's been damaged. Guess where the likelihood of the pain trigger is going to be? 
right there. And we look at the facet joints in the back, which are painted red here, you can see the extra load on those facet joints. So what started out as a disc injury two or three years later, we now see that golfer struggling with arthritic facet joints. So uh, as we, we, we know a lot of golfers as they age, um, if their hips become a bit arthritic or knees become arthritic, they then try and make up for it with more spine motion. But if they have a joint here, like I've just shown you, yeah. uh, we've initiated a, a cascade and then we will go to the uh, golf course, we'll give them a club and we'll see them go into backswing. And when we watch them say perhaps a number of years ago impact, they were pretty much square. In other words, they've rec fully recovered the elastic energy and now they're ready to go into follow through, which is twisting with the opposite polarity. But now they're making up for it by running ahead with their hips and now they have a huge deviation at impact. Now, here's the experiment. Do that with your spine and add a pulse, <clears throat> hard. Yeah. Do it 10 times and tell me if that generated your pain or not. So <laughs> this is how we're going to get at uh, the, the, the answer to that question uh, fairly quickly. So do you see for that particular golfer, I can tell you exactly what we're going to put into their program and what we're going to take out. Yeah. The next person, that's not their problem. Yeah. So we, we, we follow the assessment, Tom. And, uh, you know, if, if this was easy, everybody would do it. Yeah. It isn't. And uh, I know you appreciate this more than anyone. It is a science and it is an art. And when you've had a few thousand golfers, you're starting to get a feel for where that tipping point is. You know what tests to apply and how better to interpret them. And then you know how to deal with people. You, you can tell whether this person needs some tough love or a little bit of compassion. How are you going to coach them? Do they have a long attention span so you can give them a little bit of an explanation of the science? And that's what they want. They'll say, Tom, thank you. You're the first guy who hasn't treated me like a five-year-old. I now understand why I need to do that to restore my golf ability. The next person doesn't have that ability. They say, Tom, just tell me what to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's a never-ending quest for mastery of someone like yourself and i know you're trying to enhance this concept of mastery among your peers which is i'm so glad you're doing that and again some people get it and some people don't that's the way it is <laughs> well i'm i'm one of the 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 very fortunate people to uh learn how to do an assessment like from you and um, it was when, when I learned, and one of the things that I learned from you is, is you said, you'll watch the person walk up to the office door. And sometimes you're looking out the window, seeing how they get out of their car. You make them take off their shoes, even though you don't need them to take off their shoes. You just want to see how they take off their shoes and just watching them move. And, and all of that is, is just, again, is, is so brilliant, um, so impactful. Because you can, like I said before, you can have all the, the fanciest rehab in the world. But when that person leaves, if they, if they have a disc injury 
a disc bulge that hurts when they flex their spine. And then after you do the rehab, they flex their spine to put their shoes on and then they slouch in their car and then they slouch at home. Well, you, you didn't really get anywhere with that rehab. And so your approach has just been um, something that has made a, a huge impact on my ability to treat people. It's empowered me. And I know that, you know, you, you've helped um, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people recover from low back pain. But I think what is underappreciated, Stu, is how many clinicians and practitioners you've empowered by giving us this, this systematic assessment and rehab protocol that, that we can rely on. And um, something I wanted to talk about, you touched on it here a little bit, is, is social media. And this is something that I know bothers you a lot. I can only imagine. I mean, it bothers me. I can only imagine how much it, it, it can bother you. Social media has been great in a lot of ways. It's allowed um, people to connect, people to connect with professionals that they wouldn't necessarily um, normally have access to. But there are downsides to social media as well. One of those downsides is that it can be hard to know who to trust, right? There are a lot of pseudo experts or fake experts on social media. Getting advice about injury prevention or rehab from somebody who's not actually an expert can be really dangerous. But getting advice about performance from somebody that doesn't really know what they're doing or doesn't know how to coach, right? You can know maybe all of the technical stuff, all the science, but one of the things that I think is unique about you as well, Stuart, is you're, you're uh, just an extraordinary coach. You're able to identify um, different parts of a person's personality and, and coach them to become better, to motivate them. And I know you've actually studied this. You're probably one of the few people that have actually studied the effect of coaching on performance. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? How much of an impact does good coaching have on performance? Well, there are several aspects uh, to that answer. The essence or the, the, the end game for coaching is to create a difference. Either you're coaching... Uh, whatever it is, performance outcome, better team play, uh, more injury resilience, wh whatever it happens to be. So the one word concept there is transference. How do you know what you're doing in your training center transfers into their life, be it a golf course, uh, maybe they're a city bus driver or whatever it happens to be. We did a study on transference in the Pensacola, Florida fire department. So we took three groups of firefighters, 25 men, they were all men in, in each group. And one, gr one group was just a control group. You just do what you're going to do uh, each day and carry on. Uh, one group was, uh, they trained with personal trainers who encouraged them to do more reps and keep training and that kind of thing. So, you know, the style of coaching where the coach encourages, maybe even yell a little bit, you know, five more reps, la di da di da And then the uh, third group were coached by what we called the Movement Matters training group. So they were from the Exos organization who we, we, we trained them and Exos uh, trainers follow a lot of the scientific principles that we've uh, developed over the years. 
which is a coaching style that educates. So when a person does a squat, we show them, well, if you, uh, for you, for example, say your knees buckle into valgus, so you become a bit knock-kneed, or you jump off a box and you land a little bit uh, knock-kneed. Um, then if you give a certain cue to that person and certain cues, uh, they're called internal cueing, external cueing, uh, verbal cueing, auditory cueing, uh, just make a sound or a bang or a, a, you know, whatever the, the coaching cue happens to be. Uh, you think about the most appropriate cue and you might put a band around their knees and say, okay, now try and land pushing your band around, uh, pushing your knees out into the band or feel your glute med, which is responsible for externally rotating your hip. If you can control the hip, you then uh, set the outcome for the knee going into uh, valgus or that knock need position. Um, in any case, you explain that to the person while you're coaching. And the person says, yeah, I get that. Oh, my knee pain just went away. Oh, I can now jump higher. In other words, you're making the coaching a little bit of a cerebral exercise. Then the world changes. You've heard of mental imagery. So great athletes think and image their perfect performance. And it's well shown. I'm just gonna diverge for a minute. Um, a movement like a golf swing is the brain is running a tape. That tape is called an engram. So as you know, it's very difficult for some athletes to change the engram. Oh, I've got to rotate my hands over a little bit and remember that, and, you know, uh, to change that engram is, is really difficult. Um, and, and doing a stretching routine doesn't change the engram. We've also studied that as well. We can give people more hip mobility. Do you think they use it when they run or bound upstairs? No, it's an, you've got to change the engram as well. So how do you know the athlete is imaging the perfect performance when they're doing their mental imagery? Or are they imaging a perturbed pattern that guarantees non-optimal performance or more stress in a location that will eventually lead to a breakdown. What we found was with that third group when they were coached in this manner, I should also say before we started the study, we measured the firefighters doing what we call fire ground athletics. They had to chop a hole in the roof of a burning building. They had to batter down a door with a ram. They had to carry a ladder. They had to pike open an elevator door to get someone out of a, an elevator. Um, they had to advance a loaded fire hose. So spraying water out of a hose, it has a huge reaction backwards. You got to really lean in and, and stabilize and lunge step that fire hose forward. Then, um, we gave them the training, which never included any of those tasks. We never taught them how to fight fires. We, we taught them how basic patterns of squatting, lunging, lifting, lowering, um, uh, pushing, pulling, etc. But we, we, we didn't advance a loaded fire hose or chop a hole in a building. And then we measured their ability to do those firefighting tasks after the study was over. Now, this was the first study of transference. The group that 
uh, just did their uh, the control group didn't change obviously the group that did the uh, just the fitness training with the trainers who encouraged them to do more reps they got stronger they became more powerful and do you know the injury markers when they moved on the fire ground were greater you put more horsepower into a machine that wasn't moving quite as well. Well, imagine if that was a car, what's going to happen? The group that um, were, were well coached, shall we say, in the movement matters technique, explaining why you're going to do this, using the appropriate cue, getting the person to repeat, understanding the movement, that was the key. So when they went back onto the fire ground, they had far less injury markers, far less knee valgus, which we know is the biggest predictor of future risk for uh, ACL injury in the knee. They had less sagittal plane uh, spine movement and more hip movement, again, which is a way to build training capacity and have a less injury risk. So that was the first study that I know of, of that uh, transference and coaching. I, I think that was what your question was yep. getting at. Yep. That's the exact uh, study that I was referring to. And I, and I, I found it just um, fascinating because, you know, as a, as a coach, I, you assume, and you can use the eyeball test to see whether somebody's performing better. And of course the stats will analytics will, will show a certain thing. But to have an, an actual study that, you know, you put together like that and it was just so well done to show how much of an impact, uh, good coaching, coaching movement patterns, a push, a pull, a squat, a hinge, a lunge, and then how that can transfer into, into uh, such a demanding job like, like firefighting. Um, as all your studies were done, it was done brilliantly and, and the, the results were, were fascinating. So um, if, if I may, Tom, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit remiss uh, there in that all of our research, uh, our team efforts. So that we had two fabulous PhD students that lived in Pensacola with the firefighters for two years, uh, Dave Frost and Tyson Beach. And uh, my colleague and uh, Tyson's supervisor, uh, Professor Jack Callahan. So again, when, when I uh describe these studies it it is uh these are massive efforts i believe that cost in in terms of uh um uh, real costs plus in-kind donations that study cost over a half a million dollars well your your studies are trusted and we i can cut this out later if i have to but i know you've worked with the u.s military i know you've the U.S. military doesn't just trust anybody to come in and assess why they're having low back injuries in, in their in their army, but they trusted you because they trust your research. So, Stu, you're you're not teaching anymore. Well, I know you're teaching your the McGill method. Are you still working as a professor? No, I retired from the university five years ago, and uh, now my days are. Uh, well, I enjoy a retired life, but a couple of days a week, I still see patients uh, with COVID. Uh, it's uh, online, uh, although I'm just starting to see uh, live patients again, which uh, is, it's a lot of fun, 
it's it's absolutely exhausting. After I've seen one patient, I I'm exhausted. That I have given them every brain cell I have left, and uh, uh, so I, I I don't do too much of that. But uh, we also uh, have our courses online, which I never thought in a million years was going to work with uh, COVID. As you know, you were a student. We we used to uh, uh, travel and and put on a little bit of a road show. But uh, now that the courses are online, uh, I I do the lecturing. But uh, we have our fabulous instructors, uh, Ed and Joel, who who you know, and they okay. do very small skills. Ed just develop. get his PhD. Well, he didn't just, it was several years ago. Several years but, ago? Uh, yeah. Ed, a thing on social media. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I, I, I thought that he already had it. Um, well, I, I, again, I've I lose track of time. I, I'm going to say it was three years ago. Yeah. But uh, I, I've lost track of time. But anyway, uh, and they do little hands-on tutorials on the computer where uh, one of the students will have a patient with them and, and Ed or Joel will watch them and coach them. And it's so interesting with online uh, coaching. I, I have to tell you, the first time I saw... Uh, uh, say the first five patients who I saw online with the beginning of COVID, it was awful. I should have, well, I, uh, I think most of them, I gave them their, their fees back. I felt so badly about it. I didn't understand that, oh, there might be a five second delay in the transmission. So, you know, here's a person I've, I've said, could you uh, lift your head? And the idea would be to allow a slackness on the spinal cord if I was testing some, some nerve dynamics or something in them. And they'd, uh, they wouldn't do anything. So I, I thought, well, maybe they can't hear me. I better raise my voice until it escalated. I'm yelling at them and they're not responding. And there was a five second delay and then they do something and I say, well, no, not like that. And oh, it was awful. And it took me, uh, you know, four or five uh, poor people <laughs> to, to, to hone the, the skills of, of coaching online. But I, after that, I should say it's worked out surprisingly well. And you, you do, you know, if I'm coaching someone to apply force, uh, I'll say, well, there's a strawberry under your thumb, really squeeze the strawberry. And, and you, you get to create visual images, I guess, with uh, coaching, but it, it makes you a better coach, doesn't it? It does. And, and, you know, I, I have learned from you and, and, your techniques involve a lot of um, tactile cues where you're touching the person and, and cueing them to contract this muscle and move here. And when you take that away and you're doing that virtually, uh, same things do I, I didn't really appreciate, I didn't have an appreciation going into it, how much more challenging it was going to be both for myself and for the, the patient and the client to be able to, to master and manage all of that. But um, yeah, it took a little while, but it turns out it works actually quite well and allows us to reach, reach a, a wider audience. Um, where can people find you? I know that there's, there's personal trainers, there's clinicians and practitioners listening. Where can they find you and where can they sign up for some of your courses? Right. Well, our website is backfitpro.com. Just as it sounds, B-A-C-K. I got to learn how to spell now. F-I-T-P-R-O.com. 
And uh, there's two portals. If you're a patient or a back pain sufferer, you enter through one portal. If you're a clinician, you enter through another. And a clinician would enter, and then they will see resources, um, the online courses if they're interested uh, in that kind of thing, uh, how to become a certified uh, clinician. And once they're certified and on our website, they get a referral service. So people who are the back pain sufferers, then we'll see who's certified in your system and who's close. So it's, it's a nice little referral system. And then we have another layer called master clinicians. These are clinicians who I've worked with personally. I know that they have the skills to make a difference in difficult, challenging back pain cases. And then they start to work together between the certified uh, clinicians and the master clinicians. So a master might do a very thorough assessment and then work with the certified clinician to do some uh, follow-up sessions and that kind of thing. So it's a nice little uh, community. Um, and, and that takes me a fair amount of time, uh, <coughs> excuse me, each week to uh, maintain all of that as well. But anyway, and as you know, I'm not... Uh, I, I, I simply can't volunteer comments on social media or answer questions or deal with all the, uh, the, the horrible side uh, of it, really, with people bickering and fighting about things that, if there was a context and a conversation with depth, it would be okay, mm -hmm. but that doesn't seem to uh, evolve. And I've, I've been on social media a couple of times, and I just felt I needed a therapist myself <laughs> after reading some of the stuff. So I, I'm, I, I don't really, uh, I will say this, how many masters of the craft have you seen on social media in anything? Yeah. And uh, I would say, if you're striving to become a master of the craft, uh, you won't be on the social media uh, it's, so it's you can only do one or the other you exactly can't it's something that um um has been it's a lot of work for me so I, I i post things on on instagram probably not as often as i should if i'm trying to build a, a bigger following on instagram but you're absolutely right Stu. um to do all of that it, it, you're running uh, like an online business and, and that takes a, a lot of time and effort. And if you're doing all of that, then there's going to be less time and effort that you can spend on your craft. I would prefer to spend my time um, going through research and, and taking more courses and, and learning more. And, um, and so some of these experts, we use that term lightly, if they're have all of this time to post all of this stuff and create this. Some of the content looks really good, but then how much time are they putting into mastering their craft? And you're, you're absolutely right. I, I completely agree with that. Stu, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on. As you know, you, you, you have been a huge influence on me. You've been so generous with your time. Uh, I, I really miss the old social way that we used to do things. Yeah. Not no. the new social way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the term social has a different meaning now. <laughs> it, you know, isn't that interesting? Yeah. What, 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 a, what a, a quantum shift. Yeah, very quickly, too. 
it's been interesting. We've been living through a very fascinating time. And um, just even just the last 10 years has been. The, well, the... I think of the last two. Yeah. Uh, how, how much things have changed and how we interact with one another. And uh, the direction of the world. Well, that's a that's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> well, I'm not the expert, so <laughs> you, you're gonna. It turns to out you it. don't have to be an expert, Stu. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. Well, Stu, I, again, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, if you are uh, struggling with low back pain, first thing you got to do right now, as soon as you you hit stop, is get on the computer, order the back mechanic. It will honestly provide you with with um, that empowerment that you need to recover if you're a clinician a practitioner kinesiologist physiotherapist go out and get get the the latest edition of uh, low back disorders i think there's their four four editions now no it's in its third edition and, and i should say if someone was going to go to uh uh, well, they can go to BackFit Pro or even Amazon's around yeah. the world, but it's it's just called Back Mechanic. It's not the oh, Back Mechanic. Okay. And and when you think about that, I had to think about that um, title long and hard. The Back Mechanic is very different from Back Mechanic. It is. It is. It's it very is. Different. Yeah. So the yeah. book is called Simple Back Mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. I've been telling people the wrong name for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Stu. I my, my pleasure, Tom. And, and thank you for all that you do. And I really appreciate the thoughtfulness that went into your constructing your questions and, and the context and the framing that you gave them. That was superb. So good for you. Thanks. Well, you're very welcome. And, and you know, this not I try to do that with with all my guests. Um, it's important to me and it was really important to me to, to make sure that um, I showed the appreciation, not just for you and, and what you've done for me and for, for many, many people, but also for your work and your work has just been fantastic and, and it deserves a lot of respect. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome. <laughs>